At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you if you can agree with me on a particular thesis statement, all right? Here it is. Can we all agree that listening to or engaging with a good story is one of the most satisfying things that we can experience in our culture today? You guys agree with that? All right. Everybody loves a good story. This is why we'll pay top dollar to go see the latest new movie. Rumor has it, Spider-Man's pretty popular right about now. This is why we'll binge watch an entire season of our favorite television show because of the story that's unfolding before us. And it's also why we'll spend hour upon hour during the summer months catching some sun and reading our favorite author in one of his uh, newest, latest novels. That's what we do because we love to enter in, we love to be enveloped by, and we can appreciate a good story. But here's a question for you. What happens when... Someone spoils the end of the story. What happens then? You kind of, oh, no, I'm not even going to watch it now. I know how it ends. I'm going to put the book aside. I'm not interested. What do you do when you find out how the story all wraps up before you even get there? Well, curiously, and I do mean curiously, there are some of us who actually like to know the ending before we get into the story. How many of you are those people? I'd like to know the end before I kind of commit to jumping in. Anybody? Just a couple. Okay. Well, according to a Washington Post columnist named Olga Mecking, there are actually many people who prefer to know the end before they, be, they dig into the story. Here's why. She says, when so much in our world feels uncertain, knowing how a film or a book will end can give an audience a sense of peace, feeling of control. Now let me ask the question again. How many of you like to know the end before you jump in? You see, whether you're looking for a sense of peace or you're finding that kind of grasping for control moment, knowing the end can, in fact, be beneficial. And here's what I want to tell those of you who are there. I've got good news for you today. The biblical text that we're looking at today actually gives us a spoiler. As we turn to Revelation, which is John's vision that he has received from God, what we find in the text is a spoiler. You guys want to know what it is? We're going to find out after we pray. <laughs> let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for inviting us here today. Thank you for the divine 
invitation that you have given each one of us that we might be here with your people to sing your praises, to give you the worship that you are due. God, you are holy. You are righteous. You are sovereign. We could spend the rest of our days describing you and your goodness. But in this moment, God, it is our desire that we would just come before you humbly, lay down our our thoughts, lay down our concerns, lay down everything that we brought in with us today, lay it down before you, and ask your spirit to speak to us through your word. God, we acknowledge that your word is truth. As a church, we stand upon this truth. As people of your word, we lean upon this truth, and it guides us and directs us. And so, God, we need you today to give us eyes to see this truth. We ask humbly that you would give us ears to hear this truth and then humble hearts that we might be able to live this truth today. God, we ask all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, church family, we are continuing our Revelation All Things New sermon series. And as we do that, we are continuing our look at the wonderful, mysterious, hope-filled book of Revelation. You may remember a few weeks ago, our senior pastor, Chris Brooks, kicked off our series at the beginning of Revelation 19 with a look at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then I had the opportunity to lead us into the victorious Christ in part two of our series. Pastor Kevin then taught us the triumphant reign of Christ last Sunday, and today, the hope-filled nature of this truth going to come in kind of a different package today. It's going to come in different wrapping, and yet it is no less true. Here is what the theme is for today. God gets the final word on sin and evil. I'm going to say that one more time. God gets the final word on sin and evil. Now, the reality is this remains consistent with each message in the series. What Pastor Chris started with, what I taught, what Pastor Kevin taught, and even today, it's consistent because it connects with what I mentioned to you last uh, two weeks ago. You may remember that I told us when we're reading Revelation, it's important to recognize the big picture. How many of you remember the big picture? All right. There will be a quiz When you leave today, there will be a quiz as you head out the doors. I'm going to give you uh, the, the answer key. The big picture to Revelation is God wins. You didn't remember it, so we're going to say it again. What is it? God wins. You see, this is important for us if we are to see clearly that God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, will in fact destroy evil. He wins. He'll rescue the believers, those who are in Christ. God wins. He will ultimately transform creation because 
God wins. And so the big picture, the spoiler alert to a degree from the book of Revelation is God wins. Now, what we're going to look at this morning is how, in fact, this truth is detailed in John's vision once again. So I want us to grab our Bibles. We're going to be turning once again to the book of Revelation. If you are new here or new to the church, new to Christianity, new to the faith, Revelation is the last book in the New Testament. It's the last book in the Bible, and we're going very near the end. We are looking at Revelation chapter 20, and we are going to pick up uh, our text today at verse Seven, verse 7. Here's what John saw in his vision. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. There's Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and it will be tormented day and night forever. That's where I want to stop. We're going to continue reading, but that's where I want to stop right now. Again, when we read Revelation, we are confronted with intense imagery. There's a lot there for us to unpack. There is Satan. We've heard about him throughout the Scriptures. He's there. So there's Satan. There's a couple of Old Testament enemies of God named Gog and Magog. They're ready for the battle. And then there's this fire that rains down from heaven, and then the devil is cast into the lake of fire. Can we just all have a moment? Wow. If that makes you kind of go yawn, we're not paying attention. There's Satan, there's these Old Testament people, there's a fire that's raining down, and the devil is cast into the lake of fire. Wow. The truth is, what we just read is the conclusion of something much larger than what we just captured in those few verses. Just that little section of Scripture is very significant, and actually, it's actually begun a little bit earlier, and specifically in chapter 17. So I'm going to try to give us a little bit of context here uh, for us to accurately capture what is going on and the magnitude of what's happening. So I'll try to give us some context here. In chapter 17, God begins to dismantle what theologians refer to as the hierarchy of hell. Versus the destruction of the city of Babylon. Then in chapter 19, we read of the beast and the false prophets. They are cast into the lake of fire. And here in today's passage, we witness the finished work of God's judgment against the powers of darkness. That's what's going on in our text. Ho-hum, no big deal. No, it's a massive deal. You might say, well, what does this look like practically? In the vision of God that he gives to the Apostle John, this morning what's going to happen is we're going to 
see three specific acts of God's judgment and how they play out and why it matters to you and to me on our faith journey. The first comes when Satan is defeated. Satan is ultimately defeated. You see, earlier in Revelation 20, John highlighted the fact that the God that bound Satan for a thousand years, restricting his ability to deceive the nations. We read that earlier. But here... Verses 7 and 8 specifically, Satan is released from his prison. Now, what do you think he do? Do you think he was reformed in prison? Did he, did he turn around? Did he, yeah, you know what? I know the air of my ways. I'm going to walk the straight and narrow now. Not exactly. Immediately, he returns to his evil ways, seeking to, to deceive the masses and turn people against God. Now, how do we know that? Because it says he was rushing to the four corners of the earth. Let me give you a word that captures what that means. They're rushing everywhere. To the four corners of the earth, Satan and his minions are rushing everywhere. Satan finds success in his mission. Listen to verse 9. Their number is like the sand of the sea. You ever try counting sand? He's deceived many. He's deceived many, and in John's vision, they're all coming to attack and to be opposed to God's people. Listen to verse 9 again. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. You guys capturing the picture here? It seems kind of terrifying. I mean, if we're being honest, what's happening right here in our text seems frightening. But again, we have a spoiler. There's no need for God's people to be terrified because of what we read in the next few verses. Look back at uh, verses 9 through 11. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. How often is that? Forever. Forever. Satan and his army have been defeated. The army of the deceived will be defeated. But let's bring this closer to home. We've all faced situations like the camp and the saints where the the opposition is surrounding us. We've all experienced that, haven't we? Seemingly overmatched, seemingly outnumbered, feeling less than strong in the moment. And yet somehow in the face of that opposition, in the face of what seems overwhelming to us, God provides victory for his people. He provides victory for you and for me. Perhaps for you it looks like staying true to your conviction in the face of a temptation. Temptation could have come in play in a business setting, in a school environment, whatever the temptation is, you were able to stay strong to your conviction. 
Or maybe it was experiencing peer pressure. When you get in that moment and you are surrounded by everybody who is doing it, whatever it is, they're all doing it. God provides a supernatural strength for you in the face of that kind of onslaught. And you overcame. In that moment, you overcame, not in your own strength, not because you just, you just stood strong and emboldened yourself. No, because of God's strength that he gives you in the moment. As I was thinking about this message and preparing for this message, I remembered a time in my 20s when I was with a group of peers. There was this intense pressure to jump in and to do what they were doing. These were my, these were my, my buddies. But I knew what they were doing wasn't what was honoring to God in that moment. But they were my peers, they were my buds. I wanted to fit in. Thankfully, God gave me the strength to respectfully walk away. Now, I say that God gave me the strength because I didn't do that in my own strength. My own strength wanted to stay. My own strength wanted to participate in that activity. And yet God gave me the conviction and the strength that I could, in fact, walk away. And that was the work of God in my life. And I know today that as I unpack that story just briefly, you have a story just like that. God has shown up and given you the strength to turn away in the face of this onslaught. But here's the reality. That isn't just something that happens in the past. Yeah, that happened to me in my 20s. I'm going to tell you, if you look close, there's some gray here. I'm a long way from my 20s. And so you might be saying, wait a minute, Pastor, I'm facing that kind of thing right now. I have this experience in my life, in my workplace, in my home, in my neighborhood. I feel overwhelmed. I feel overmatched. Believer, there's hope for you. There's hope for you today in Christ. Because he is the one who gives his strength to his people. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he exhorts believers in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Do you do it in your own strength? Just stealing yourself up on a do it. Is that how you do it? One person says no. You want me to read that passage again? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Church, it is God who wins the battle. It was Jesus who defeated sin and death upon the cross, and it is our sovereign Lord who will ultimately defeat Satan and his enemies. That's our God. Now let's continue reading in the text. Pick it up at verse 11. And then I saw 
I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and the sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death in the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You guys see what John is laying out for us? It's pretty intense. There's a, a significant measure of hope when we read this text, and it begins with what we see at the beginning. John sees a great white throne. A great white throne. Here's where three things I want you to have in mind. The greatness of the throne signifies God's divine power. The whiteness of the throne signifies absolute purity. And the throne itself, the throne itself reveals ultimate authority. Ultimate authority. A theologian by the name of John Cooster summarizes the scene, and I love the way he does this. He says, the power of God is palpable in this scene. All people. Great and small, render an account to the sovereign, to the one who is seated on the throne. That means young and old. That means famous and the unknown. That means the rich and the poor. That means the conservative and the liberal. All of them. Make any distinction you want between two separate people groups. All of them, they will all be standing before the throne of Almighty God. All of them. To get a picture of that, I want to take you to a football stadium. How many of you have been to the big house? It's a lot of people, right? I mean, that's a lot of people. How many of you were at the Taylor Swift concert last night? <laughs> you saw the streets of Detroit? That was a lot of people. It pales in comparison. What we're talking about is all of humanity. Not just 100,000 of your closest friends like at the big house. That pales in comparison to what John is describing in our text. But you might say, well, why a crowd? Well, John tells us that the masses are standing in the presence of the sovereign God for one reason, and it is our second act of judgment that we're looking at today. Sin is judged. There will, in fact, be a final judgment of our sin. Look back at verse 13. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and there were books opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. 
Let me summarize that for us. Let me paraphrase that for us. Turns out what we do in our lives actually matters. It does matter. What we do in our daily lives is, in fact, captured in the books that John mentions. One book details the deeds of all people. I'm going to highlight this for us in one way. I want you to think about human accountability. When this book is open, it is subject to divine judgment, and that is human accountability. All the things we've done are measured and detailed in those books. Now we get to the other book. The other book is called the Book of Life. This is the civic record of the citizens of God. The book of life is where God's people's names are written. This I want you to think about as divine grace. So the first one, think human accountability. This one I want you to think of divine grace. John details earlier in the book of Revelation where he declares that God's people are inscribed from the foundation of the world. The names of those in the book of life have been there from the foundation of the world. That is what John tells us in his writing. But this leads us to an incredibly important question, one that every one of us should be wrestling with in this moment, one that has eternal ramifications. Wait a minute, pastor, whose names are in the book? Who's in the book? Am I in the book? You see, the book of life is detailed later in John's vision. It's detailed in Revelation chapter 21, 27, where he refers to the book as the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb, of course, is the sacrificial Lamb of God. Jesus. The Lamb's book of life is the book of Jesus and the one who went to the cross in our place, the one who gave up his life so that you and I as believers might in fact have life. Those are the names written in the book of life. The names of all who trust in the Lamb those who trust in the Lamb for salvation, for all who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, your name is in fact written in the book of life. I should see a room filled with smiling faces. If you know Jesus today, your name is written in the book of life. That's why we gather to sing God's praises, not to stand here with our hands in our pockets and mumble a few words. We sing, we worship our God because our name is written in the book of life because of Jesus. If you were here today and you would say, you know what, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, then today might be the day that alters your eternity. Right here in this moment, today might be your day. You see, what Jesus did on the cross 
was to take the judgment that you and I deserve, and he took it upon himself. And by his grace, Jesus gives us the opportunity to turn from our sinfulness. That's called repentance. To turn from our sinfulness and to turn to Christ and believe upon his work on the cross and say, Jesus, your work is sufficient for me. You might say, well, how do I do that? How do I turn from my ways and run to Jesus by acknowledging before God that you are a sinner? You've screwed up, that your life is a mess. That's where you begin. And then you acknowledge before him that you are in need of forgiveness. And then you turn. You turn in repentance and you trust by faith in Jesus. Right here, right now. In the stillness of this moment. If God is tugging on your heart right where you are, I want to encourage you, pause and pray. Confess your sin to God. Cry out to him. Repent of your sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus. Because when you trust in God, you are trusting in the Lamb of God, Jesus. And when you stand before that great white throne of judgment, your name will be found in the Lamb's book of life, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Friends, this is why it is good and it is right for you and I to come to the book of Revelation and open it and recognize it is a book of worship. It is a book of worship because we should be so humbled by what we read that we have no other response but to worship our God. Now, let's go back to our text. See, the final judgment I read it just a moment ago, and we're going to read it again. It is packed into one little verse, verse 14. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Now, the lake of fire is the source of God's eternal condemnation, and that's the future for death and Hades. Now, mentioned multiple times in pairs in John's revelation that he received from God, death and Hades have met their demise. They're done. One 19th century theologian described it this way. He said, these monsters who have been eager to devour so many are now finding the end themselves and they are destroyed. It's a powerful picture. And this helps us see the third and final judgment of God. Death is destroyed. Death and Hades are destroyed. For, for the believer, that is wonderful news. That is absolutely powerful, beautiful, wonderful news because death is unnatural. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. And to be honest, death is most certainly not neutral. Cuts deep. Cuts deep to the soul. And anyone who has lost somebody understands exactly what I'm talking about. 
Now, I wasn't here last weekend because our family was going through this with the passing of my father-in-law. Death stole a dad. Death stole a grandfather. Death stole a husband. Death stole an uncle. Death stole a friend. It is pain and grief inducing. That is what death is. And this is why the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, refers to death as our last enemy, the last one. And this is why the text we just read is so powerful. So powerful. It's one of the most significant passages in all of Scripture for the believer. Because God doesn't just make peace with death. He doesn't dance with it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't surrender it and as give it away in, in, in kind of uh, bowing a knee to the enemy. Instead, he defeats it and he conquers it. That is our last enemy and God wipes it away. Death will come and it will be submerged under the blazing lake of fire. Gone. My Lake family at the beginning of this sermon series. I give you a spoiler. I told you that the big idea of this particular segment of Revelation is what? God wins. This is what I mean. The three acts of judgment that we have looked at today, God has delivered the final word on darkness and evil. Let me summarize it. God wins. His people overcome. And the enemy loses. May all who are in Christ today rejoice in God's victory. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.